Kia ora. Welcome to episode 81 of the SWNZ podcast, the podcast for New Zealand Star Wars fans. My name is Matt. And my name is Christy. First up, we'll just take a moment to acknowledge the state of emergency that's been going on in New Zealand for a couple of weeks. We personally were affected with flooding a couple of times. We didn't suffer quite as much during Cyclone Gabrielle, but we did have some power cuts and some internet interruptions, and that is why this podcast is going out on the weekend rather than during the week. We do hope that everyone listening in has been able to stay safe, and if you're doing a cleanup, uh, we hope that that recovery is going well for you. So on the brighter side, it was another interesting week for news from a galaxy far, far away, so let's jump in and talk Star Wars. We'll talk about some of the live-action media productions shortly, but there's one press release related to an upcoming novel that I'm quite uh, excited for. E.K. Johnson has a new book coming out, no confirmed date yet, but it's called Crimson Climb, and it is focusing on Kira's story. This seems to be, based on the image given on the cover and, and the interpretations that can come from that, seems to span the time frame during Solo, a Star Wars story, where she is separated from Han Solo and is becoming involved within and climbing the ranks of the Crimson Dawn. I think that's going to be a really interesting story and fill a really interesting gap. I'll read the synopsis for it. Not everyone gets to be the hero. Kira listened to the dreams and promises of a boy with a reckless smile, only to be torn away from him and returned to the White Worms gang while Han made his way to freedom. Now freedom seems like a luxury she can't afford while she concentrates on survival and despairs of ever leaving Corellia. But her fortunes seem to turn when a representative of the crime syndicate Crimson Dawn plucks Kira from captivity and brings her to the syndicate's leader, the mysterious and mercurial Dryden Voss. Voss offers Kira an opportunity she's never had before, the chance to build something resembling a comfortable life if she can prove her worth to this organization. With failure meaning certain death, Kira knows she must immerse herself in the merciless, murderous world of Crimson Dawn. What she doesn't know is just who she will be if she survives. This is a really neat book, and I wish that it had been announced sooner because I feel like it tells a story that we really wanted to see. I know I am one of those fans that really wishes that there would be a follow-up movie to Solo. I really like the characters and the dynamics in that. Obviously, Han Solo is popular, but there was so much about Kira in particular that was really uh, intriguing. There was so much about her. And well, we it's, know a big, her, it's a big story for her to don't... go from point A to point B. Yeah. There's a lot to be told there. Yeah, and I think that this is really fascinating. Of course, it would have been really fun to have like uh, a Disney Plus series sort of tracking this period of time. But at least we can get it in book form, and who knows if there'll be uh, subsequent media adaptations further down the line. I just want to know how she makes that sort of gap. She's a very different person, yes. you know. She's she's quite she's yeah. she's matured. She, she she hints at having done things uh, in a way that she thinks that Han wouldn't uh, care for her anymore, and so we only get sort of little hints, or you know, or let our imagination sort of fill in the gaps. But I think this could be a really good book. Yeah, yeah. For, it's a tragedy to be sure, but I think it will be um, an interesting series of, of plots and narratives. We know, yeah. we know Kira's story has been expanded on in the comics as well, of course, but um, I think this sounds like, or I get the feeling that it's going to be a fairly tight time frame, very focused, you know, storytelling. She has a really interesting dynamic with Dryden Foss. There's sort of like this constant tension and this this sort of really tenuous trust. She really knows how to fight and to handle herself. And when given the opportunity 
she just wants to climb that rank higher. So we, she knows that she's like pretty in deep with Crimson Dawn. So I really, I can't, it's a shame there's no release date to this because this is a really tantalizing synopsis for this book. I'm very, very much looking forward to it. So we'll stay tuned for some more information and a release date for that novel. Let's talk about live action material. Like I said, interesting. Uh, recently, the Disney Investors Call took place. This is a, a streamed event where shareholders, uh, Disney shareholders, get to hear about uh, Disney's upcoming st- strategy for the for the following year and so forth. Um, not a lot about Star Wars was mentioned directly in the call, but on social media shortly thereafter, Bob Iger did make some comments on Disney Plus's core brand strategy. He said we're going to lean even harder into Disney, Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars and Avatar, uh, which is, of course, not a lot of detail, but good to hear. We know that some aspects of Star Wars productions slowed down while Bob Chapek was the CEO of Disney, and that is being essentially reversed under Bob Iger. Because Bob Iger certainly seemed to know how to handle these licenses, these sorts of licenses, or at least um, wanted to make the most of them and keep them moving along and, and producing good good material on an ongoing basis. So I think that's good news on the whole. Yes, Iger really understands that you can't throttle creativity and you can't just sort of reduce it down to a bank balance and sort of numbers and profits and all that kind of stuff. You have to let the creative process lie in the hands of the creative people. So I'm really hoping that we start to see Iger's effect come into play here, especially relating to Star Wars series and movies, that it isn't just, oh, let's cut some corners, let's trim that one off the to-do list, um, that that they're going to get back into sort of investing. And also that it will come through with a sort of an umbrella strategy tying it all together. Um, And there's sort of rumors, speculation, I'm not sure necessarily what it might be founded on, but I certainly believe it's plausible and I'm hopeful for it that there will be a bit more information about the ongoing movie strategy and timelines coming out at the Star Wars Celebration event in, in April. That's from the 7th to the 10th of April. Certainly Disney has seen that there is money to be made from going to the movies again with the release of this Avatar sequel. And we're seeing them sort of picking up pace with some of the Marvel properties with uh, Wakanda Forever and the imminent Quantum Mania Ant-Man sequel. So I think that'll give them a much more confidence that yes, they can release big special effects heavy box office hits so hopefully that will have a flow-on effect into bringing star wars back into the theaters as well all right we've got a couple of bite-sized bits of information about, about upcoming series and or season two filming there's some reports of some upcoming filming locations we're going to we don't need to go into too much detail in terms of spoiler what spoilers these might imply but it's nice to know as we often say in these podcasts that these things are happening in, in real time and what that means in terms of production the mclaren technology center in woking was used for the coruscant spaceport in season one of andor and it's going to be revisited for season two i guess that's not too much of a spoiler not that we'll be returning to coruscant but like i say it's fun to know that these things are taking place and that we'll be returning to those specific locations there's also word that some andor season two filming will be taking place in valencia in spain the details are sparse but this information comes by way of the fact that casting of extras is well underway That'll be an interesting one. Some interesting potential scenery in uh, Valencia in Spain. We know that it's been used for some, uh, that Spain has been used for some interesting locations in the prequel trilogy in the past. <laughs> and it is kind of 
I saw a little bit of a reference to this online, kind of funny that uh, everyone else is focusing on the use of the volume and the um, interesting effects that you can get out of that. Meanwhile, Tony Gilroy is all sort of, um, yeah, I want to go to Spain. Let's, uh, we need to shoot these scenes in Spain, let's, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, both different approaches to filmmaking, you know, the volume lets people do things on a budget and and quickly, but there is something nostalgic in my in my heart about filming in locations, particularly ones that make me think of the prequels. You know, they filmed a lot across Europe, uh, particularly for some of the locations centered on Naboo. So it'll be really interesting to see. Uh, I love the fans going through and IDing the filming locations, mm-hmm. you know, and putting together the big jigsaw puzzle of, you know, spy photos and casting rumors and and then and actually seeing the places in the finished product as well and putting it all together because we personally we do enjoy visiting filming locations yeah. you know around the world you know still got a few to tick off on our bucket list but i think that that's a fun thing for fans you know knowing that these so places exist it's yeah. it's 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 a little tangible piece of Star Wars, you know. You're not in the movie, but you're there, standing it where it was be, made. Can be surprisingly immersive because mm. when they use um, on location, when they do on location filming, it's typically because they need the full 360 degree environment. It's yeah. not, not not pointing in one direction like a set necessarily, or even the volume, which is sort of limited uh, in, in some ways. But yeah, it can be quite immersive because it that's, um, surrounds you and envelops you. Other small bits and pieces, the Acolyte filming is um, underway. Actor Lee Jang-jae confirms that he's shooting through to April. And we know that the Acolyte's um, at this rate not likely to be hitting Disney Plus screens until quite a bit later down the line compared to some of the other materials, but fun to hear that that, that is ticking along. John Favreau did a interview in the Variety magazine, and that is available online in reference to Skeleton Crew, which has been created by Marvel's Spider-Man director John Watts. John Favreau is executive producing that series. Jude Law stars in the series, which has been described as a Spielberg-esque coming-of-age story set in the same Mandalorian era. Skeleton Crew is scheduled to air this year. But no confirmed date yet for that. And we, the information we get from this John Favreau interview is that unlike the Boba Fett and Ahsoka characters, characters from the Skeleton Crew will not appear elsewhere first. So it will be fresh characters that we see in the Skeleton Crew. It is interesting that he says will not first appear, which does sort of leave the door open to <laughs> some sort of like crossover later on when we are familiar with the skeleton crew. And I think that that's a clever idea. You could introduce the characters of Boba Fett and Ahsoka in The Mandalorian to the wide audience because it, all the fans know who these characters are. They don't need their whole series to sort of introduce them. Yeah. With the skeleton crew, I think we need a lot to sort of bed down and introduce these characters without it feeling like uh, a spin-off from The Mandalorian. But well, I think it could be interesting if there if there is maybe an episode later down the line where there is the cross parts because they've chosen the Mandalorian era yeah. for a specific reason. Yeah, well, he very much leaves the door open for the use of these characters, and I'll, I'll come to that in a couple of quotes that uh, appeared in this interview. He says that each storyteller brings their own personality to it to the episodes of the Skeleton Crew. The groups that are working on Skeleton Crew are led by John Watts, who he collaborated with on Spider on the Spider Man movies. Uh, Favreau says this has been a real fun time, and the great filmmakers that he's engaged with have been bringing their perspectives as well. 
Interestingly, he says there's always an opportunity when you have a set of characters and stories that people connect with that you could cross media into different areas, kind of implying that these characters could be reused um, through different channels down the line. Marvel does it quite effectively, he says. It's just a matter of where our time should be spent and what the appetite of the audience is. With all these stories we're telling, it definitely is a full-time job just keeping this going with what we're doing now. Television has a much different rhythm and schedule than film does. Yes, well, we can only just imagine just how busy Favreau is these days with all the different Star Wars projects. He is heavily involved in a number of them, and obviously Disney would probably put a lot of emphasis on The Mandalorian behind the scenes because that is a pretty big breadwinner for the Disney Disney Plus stable of sort of headline shows. You know, people used to talk about, you know, that basically carried Disney Plus subscriptions on its back with that huge, well, you know, success of season one. Of, particularly now that we're a couple of series into it, you know, across the board with, with Mandalorian and Book of Boba Fett and or Obi-Wan Kenobi, there's like some really good Star Wars material for subscribers to get stuck into. And I think that's that's quite attractive for Star Wars fans. I think sometimes perhaps the story path of Grogu is probably perhaps a little bit different than what has eventual what has sort of eventuated now in season three. I guess we'll never know whether the whether the storytellers and and writers actually intended for Grogu and Dinjarin to be together this long. Mm. Um, but I dare say it's probably come up from from the head honchos at Disney to not write that character out to keep finding ways for these for these two to to stay together. But obviously, it's introducing us to some really interesting stories well, on, the, on that specific note there is a clip that's come out on the official from season three on the official star wars youtube channel and i won't delve into spoilers if you want to avoid that but that reference is specifically made to that that basically dinjarin has completed his quest of trying to take grogu to the jedi um, in, in terms of um, meeting luke and grogu undergoing some training with luke but he says that you know the child grogu has come back to him so he's yeah. now that quest is over and they're just on a, uh, a path as a as a clan of two on an ongoing basis it would seem but mm. we'll find out very shortly when season three debuts on disney plus on march the first Star Wars Young Jedi Adventures is an animated series due to hit a Disney Plus in the not-too-distant future. This is the series that's aimed at preschool children. We mention it now because StarWars.com published an article that has a few images of the characters and some small additional details about that. This won't be appealing to everybody unless you're the sort of person that just wants to consume all Star Wars material that's out there, and that, that probably describes us fairly well personally. But two new images from the series have been revealed. One features Master Yoda, who will be featuring in this uh, Young Jedi Adventures series. Jedi younglings Kai, Lise and Nubs, and their friends Nash and the droid RJ-83 on a planet, a new planet called Tenu. There's a second image that shows some of those characters, Lise, Kai and Nubs, during a training sequence. And we can sort of see they're very stylized, uh, cute animated characters that will quite attention-grabbing for the, for the preschoolers and sort of start to engage them in the ways of the Force. Yeah, clearly I am not the target audience of this show, but I am still keen to check it out. I particularly like the cute little sort of galactic pals, the ones that are sort of centered around animals and stuff, but they are very short. Looking forward to sort of more 
uh, long format animation and it's a different style of anim- animation that we haven't really seen in the Star Wars space before but clearly sort of fits very well in with that sort of the preschool sort of obviously Disney's very well experienced in this you know the shows like Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and all those kind of things have you know been proven to be very successful for Disney they obviously want to plug in other IPs like yep. Star Wars into that sort that of young age group, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. Um, if you've got young kids yourself, you may be uh, introducing them to it via this medium and, and perhaps looking over their shoulder as a screening. Empire Magazine, April 2023. The cover features The Mandalorian. There's two alternate covers of that, uh, focusing on The Mandalorian Season 3. And as often happens with the Empire Magazine, they have a series of internal articles and interviews that they release over you know, a period of a week or so. There's a really good interview there with Katie Sackhoff out so far, um, where she, she describes some of her experiences um, historically on The Mandalorian and on Season 3 moving forward. And a couple of other interviews with John Favreau and Dave Filoni. I believe an interview with Emily Swallow may be coming up. I haven't seen that one online yet, but that may be being released in the next day or so. Katie Sackhoff uh, talks about Mandalorian Season 3. She says it's been over 10 years now that she first, since she first played the Mandalorian warrior Bo-Katan in the Star Wars universe. Well, the character's live-action debut came in Season 2 of The Mandalorian with Sackhoff herself donning Bo-Katan's armor. Her history with the character goes right back to 2012, when she was introduced in the Clone Wars animated series. Sackhoff says, I've lived in this woman's skin for a long time. One of the things that John and I focus on is where she is in the moment, what peppers her experience. John and Rick every single day defer to me, which is a crazy experience. To have these masters ask me what I feel, I assume that's uh, Rick Famuyiwa, the director. It respects the craft and the years that I have put in, says Sackhoff. I really do know her. Her pain is my pain when she experiences something. I really feel it. So, yeah, she's done some interesting characters along the way. And she does seem to be the sort of person that does engage and embody the characters that she portrays uh, in in quite a significant way. And that seems to be the case with Bo-Katan. Yeah, I mean, most actors wouldn't really think about, you know, revisiting characters so far down the track, but we see that a lot in pop culture, especially with the sort of the the likes of Marvel and Star Wars really trying to keep characters uh, portrayed by the same people, a sort of continuity, and we're seeing that more in sort of uh, animation, live action, TV series crossing over. And I, I like the loyalty there, and I like that it gives actors and performers a chance to really sort of dive deeper into the characters. I think us as fans really like to know the small details and, you know, all the little details that sort of fill out these characters and their backstories and things like that. I really like the character of Bogotan. I was so excited when she got brought into the live action world in The Mandalorian. And I'm so excited to hear that how sort of connected to the character Katie Sackhoff feels. You can sort of, you feel it on screen. And I really do like when, especially when it's characters I enjoy, but for any Star Wars character, I really like hearing how much the actors feel sort of attached and connected to characters that it wasn't just yet another acting gig that they did they walked in did their job and walked off you know i think it means i think it conveys how much of an understanding they have that that character is significant to the fans as well yes. in some ways yeah 
She's obviously had a sort of a track history of sort of sci-fi and fandoms tracing back to her work on Battlestar Galactica. So I like that she appreciates, you know, that, that fans really do sort of connect with these characters. And it feels like you can sort of trust an actor to, to do well when they, when they sort of appreciate the weight that's going to go behind these in terms of the fan reactions and, and wanting them to be sort of really good, you know. It's always a little bit risky when you bring in a beloved character into a new franchise, as it were. You know, The Mandalorian is still pretty new in the realm of the scope of Star Wars, you know, and and she goes back, like she says, more than 10 years and bringing a sort of a, a loved character, especially a Mandalorian character. You know, there was all these sorts of complex uh, threads going on there with her storyline in the Clone Wars and bringing it in here. I really hope she gets a decent amount of screen time in season three. I'm really hoping to see yeah. her have sort of like a, a, a crucial, uh, without, you know, giving too many spoilers away, hoping you're all caught up on season two before season three hits. But I'm hoping that her storyline ends up being a significant one in season three. Yeah, I don't think, well, I mean, she's pretty prominent in the trailers as is her gauntlet fighter, her, her starship, which I, which is cool to see. I like that side of that vehicle. So yeah, I think there'll be some interesting interesting interactions and story development for Bo-Katan and Katie Sackhoff in Season 3 of The Mandalorian. We have got some, we've also got some quick game news, book news and comic news to, to discuss. Last week, I think it was in the podcast, we talked about the gameplay video that had been revealed for Star Wars Jedi Survivor. More information about that game, which is due out in late April of this year, has come out via IGN.com, focusing on... Well, combat stances and in an article, um, but also a video about some of the mob enemies that you may be facing um, when playing that game. So they focus on, on droids in particular. We won't delve into the spoilers. There are one or, one or two spoilers about characters and species that, that do show up in there, but it's worth watching if you're not too spoiler averse. So if you watch that, you'll see some of the versions of droids that you may be familiar with in the game and some of which even have some action figures uh, coming out, specific Jedi Survivor versions of those action figures. I thought it was fun, without going into spoilers, most of the droids and, and the things that we see there are ones that we are familiar with, but I like the sort of the 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 versions that they have for this game. You know, everyone wants to give their sort of their little feel to it, and of course that certainly works out from a merchandising standpoint, doing subtle variations of droids that we know means that Hasbro can <laughs> pump out a few repaints. But I thought this was fun. If you have played the other ones, there won't be spoilers in this. If you're thinking about jumping in and playing this one and you haven't played the first one, there might be a little bit of spoilers just the, the for essence, some of the... The essence of the, of the video is mainly talking about trash mobs, about group yes, mobs that be not, fighting, not main villains. No. But there is at least one species in the background that I won't mention the name of here that yes. is a bit of a spoiler yeah so if you're keen and you've played the first game do check it out it gives you a little bit of a hint it's certainly exciting and i do like the designs that they revealed i thought it was really cool they spoke to the designers and sort of talked about the process behind you know giving giving droids a sort of a, a new look for the game and things like that and showed some of the combat and some hints at how you might take them on in game. Yeah, well, they talk about the weaponry that droids might have available that uh, humans and humanoid uh, opponents may not have and how that will impact gameplay. 
We talked about the upcoming Akira Crimson Dawn novel. Also sort of leaked a little bit, it will be, is that another, from a certain point of view, compilation novels will be coming out in September of this year. This one will be focusing on the stories of Return of the Jedi. So this is the third in the From a Certain Point of View publications where they compile together a series of short stories from different authors focusing on the events of the original trilogy movies so far, but telling them from the points of view of background characters and characters that may not have appeared fully on screen. I enjoy these books on the whole, and it's not surprising that The Return of the Jedi 1 is coming out this year, being the 40th anniversary of that movie. Yeah, if you remember or enjoyed the very old Tales from a sort of series like Tales from Jabba's Palace and and that sort of thing, I think these ones will appeal to you. There are some really interesting stories and you get different flavors with the different authors in the mix. Uh, they're definitely uh, just nice sort of bite-side reads if you're not somebody that has a lot of time or or just the sort of attention to sit down and read a whole thick novel. These are fun uh, just sort of bite-sized Star Wars stories to jump into. So I'm quite excited about this one coming up. Also, sort of, I guess, on a similar similar topic, Kevin Scott is writing a new graphic novel for Dark Horse called Star Wars Tales from Death Star. So we published as a single graphic novel in September, and it seems to be taking on that sort of short story compilation type style as well, but uh, produced in a comic format. The synopsis for this graphic novel reads... From the destruction of Alderaan to the shadow of the forest moon, alien creatures, phantom starships, deadly artifacts, and vengeful spirits all stalk the halls of the infamous space station. As writer Kevin Scott, who also wrote Tales from the Rancor Pit and has contributed significantly to Star Wars The High Republic, and an all-star team of artists reveal the hidden evils that lurked within the charred remains of the ultimate firepower in the universe. So this will be fun to see in a graphic novel format, a different style to a text-only novel, uh, and we'll see some interpretations of um, tales related to the Death Star. All right, let's talk about local store reports. Things are showing up on the shelves here in New Zealand. A couple of Andor figures in the 3.75-inch vintage collection scale are finally available. They are shipping from Mighty Ape in particular. You can get Cassian Andor and Val Sartha right now. We'll put links down below. Some new Star Wars Body Vibe lightsaber jewelry is in, is in stock and shipping from Mighty A. This includes necklaces based on the lightsabers of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader. You've seen these in person and you're a bit of a fan of Body Vibe on the whole. Do you want to tell us about those? Yeah, Body Vibe's been making Star Wars jewelry for, ooh, going on seven or eight years now. Their stuff is always quite highly rated in my book, often made from stainless steel and sort of a surgical grade materials so they don't sort of tarnish or wear with age. And they do lightsabers pretty well, I think. Lightsabers are a common choice for pendant designs. They lend themselves very well. And of course, you can't really go past the classic hilt designs of Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. And that obviously ties into the recent Obi-Wan Kenobi series as well. So they're definitely worth checking out. We don't get a lot of the officially licensed Star Wars jewelry in New Zealand. Mighty Ape is one of the sort of lone Mm, stockists there. So if you want to add a little bit of Star Wars bling to your wardrobe, certainly check them out we've been following the availability of licensed star wars skateboards in particular the line from element brand for a while now and have just noticed that via 
Hyperide via the store Hyperide on the market, those decks have been significantly reduced. You can get quite a wide range of Star Wars styles of complete skateboards and decks ranging from about $71 and upwards. Uh, so check those out. We'll put links for those as well below. These are great for display. We have quite a few of these on display um, in our personal collection. And yeah, some really cool, really cool graphics. And it's a slightly different way to get Star Wars up on your wall if you want to uh, display them. Well, of course you can. You can use them and uh, wear them in if that's the way you want to um, celebrate Star Wars as well. It's great to see local stockists of items such as these. In the past, there have been a variety of different licensed Star Wars skateboards, but they're generally quite big, heavy, bulky things to import if you definitely want to sort of add them to your collection. So it's great to see, you know, them being more widely available in New Zealand. And so if you've been eyeing them for a while, grabbing them on sale is definitely uh, an exciting way to sort of add out your collection a little bit more. Yeah, you can get them over from Australia via the Element store in Australia, the official store, but they come in about $140 plus, I thought oh, they might be ship free shipping on that to be honest. But yeah, like I say, via the market, those are currently, currently heavily reduced. And I think that $70 to $80 price point is very, very attractive. We talked about the Star Wars Micro Galaxies Squadron Bunta Eve Battle Pack that showed up strangely in New Zealand but not anywhere else in the world. This is the Pod Racer pack of uh, Anakin Skywalker's Pod Racer and Survivor's Pod Racer available at the warehouse for $45. When we last talked about it, it wasn't available online, but since then it has shown up and you can now grab it via the warehouse.co.nz website if you haven't been able to find it in your local store directly. It's good because this one is individually listed. It is yes. not an assorted, uh, you know, case pack here. So you don't need to like wonder about whether you'll get a random one or the one that you want. They do seem to be stocked in cases of four at local stores, but we know that not everyone has a warehouse branch close by or is able to get there. And certainly four is not a lot, you know, if you happen to live in a, in a neighborhood with a few other Star Wars collectors. So great that you can buy them online now. Yeah, so that's pretty easy uh, one to hunt for. We'll put links below, but it's pretty easy to hunt for on the warehouse.co.nz. Now we're going to talk about a couple of episodes of The Bad Batch because a little over a week ago now, a week and a half ago, episodes 7 and 8 screened back to back on Wednesday night in New Zealand. I'll uh, run through the synopses for both of these because I think when we talk about them, the story overflows a little bit between between the two episodes and that's why they were released uh, simultaneously. There are definitely a double episode that needs to be watched together. So episode seven, The Clone Conspiracy, and episode eight, Truth and Consequences. The first one did not have the Bad Batch in at all. It very much felt like just an extension of The Clone Wars. And it really, I, I enjoyed both of these, but that really did just leave me thinking and realizing how much Clone Wars material and how much of a how much of a solid and long-standing franchise the Clone Wars is in general? You can really appreciate that some people have come into Star Wars via the Clone Wars in its entirety, and it's cool to see that it's just, just ongoing in the form of the Bad Batch. But that first episode, The Clone Conspiracy, did not have the Bad Batch in it, and the Imperial Senate rampart pushes for the passing of a bill authorizing the military recruitment of Imperial citizens, meaning that the clones will be officially discarded. Senator Ryo Chuchi defends the clone's fundamental rights and she happens later to be approached by clone trooper Slip. Chuchi begins to investigate Rampart's conspiracy, but just as she tries to convince Slip to testify, a hidden assassin kills him. Before Chuchi can suffer the same fate, she's rescued by Captain Rex, who Slip had previously summoned for help, but he didn't make it in time to help Slip directly. 
The assassin was an unnamed clone, an identifiable clone. Uh, he kills himself before he is able to be questioned for information. Following on from that, Rex contacts the Bad Batch in episode 8 and asks them to join him and Chuchi to tell them and tells them about Rampart's plot. They need to gather evidence against Rampart. Rex asks Bad Batch to retrieve a slip's copy of Rampart's command log from Rampart's Venator-class Star Destroyer, which happens to be undergoing maintenance on Coruscant. While Omega accompanies Tucci, who tries to get support from more, from more senators, Rex and the rest of the Bad Batch sneak aboard the cruiser to retrieve the, retrieve the data but trigger an alarm and barely escape. The following morning, Tucci accuses Rampart in front of the entire Senate, and just in time, the data is, the evidence is, Reaches her, Rampart is arrested when it is revealed to the entire Senate that uh, the Venator-class Star Destroyers were in fact responsible for the destruction of Topoka City. Emperor Palpatine makes a very grand entrance at this point. He personally orders the Imperial Recruitment Bill to be passed, despite the efforts of uh, Bad Batch and Tucci, proving that this was his goal all along. Before the Bad Batch leave Coruscant, Echo decides to stay with Rex and Tucci to help help fighting for the clones' rights. So there was a lot of political maneuvering. There was that sort of episode that very much had the prequel movie type of complexity and feel to it, which I very much enjoyed. I enjoy that that change in pace from some of the um, smaller adventures or more action-oriented adventures because you can get quite a lot more complex storytelling into the mix, and that's very much what we got out of these episodes. There was a lot of development in terms of the overall direction that the Empire is going, but there were also some really interesting hidden loose ends, particularly related to that unnamed assassin clone, some sort of story going on there about who he was and and how he came to be operating under these circumstances. Uh, That leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Obviously, he was working with Rampart or instructed by Rampart, but why someone may have manipulated a clone in this manner. The clone also referred to himself as a believer and told Rex, who recognized that he was on, on the wrong path and fighting for the wrong side, which has some interesting implications in there. Yeah, these episodes were so connected, I was almost surprised not to see them sort of saying part one, part two. Mm. And I think it was really interesting that even though we know that, you know, Palpatine is emperor of, you know, the Galactic Empire, he's still not done with his scheming. There is still a lot yeah, of sort of threads that he is controlling and still just sort of manipulating things. So no one's ever really sort of coming up directly against him. And he's, he's using a lot of pawns in play to do work you know that kind of that really master manipulator that's getting people to do things that they think is their idea things that they are passionate about but well, he is by, he the, is by the end of it i wasn't actually sure if rampart had been just trying to advance his own personal trajectory all along or if he'd been fully manipulated as a pawn from palpatine from the get-go because yeah. palpatine set up a win-win scenario where if rampart succeeded or failed palpatine would get what he wanted out of the situation yeah, and I thought that, that was really interesting because we knew that was basically how the Clone Wars began. You know, he was controlling both sides, so no matter which side won, he would come out sort of in control. And we still see that, that he still has these grand plans because we have yet to sort of really hit the Stormtrooper mark. And and this is the time where we see that, where he finally announces the sort of the Imperial Stormtroopers and that the clones are going to be phased out. And it's kind of sad 
to see the Bad Batch realize that they kind of played into his hand, that that this was his plan all along, and that kind of doesn't bode very well for any of the clones. Uh, we kind of left with this sort of, I don't know, this sort of sinking feeling that we don't really know, you know, how the fate of the clones is going to play out from this. We've always felt a little bit, you know, on edge about the Bad Batch because they're putting themselves in some risky situations. We know that the Empire is gunning for them, but this kind of puts a little bit of an uneasy tone. We saw that Rampart basically, you know, said, yes, we'll give them all sort of pension plans, we'll look after them, we'll give them rights and all this kind of stuff. But we know that that was just to kind of get uh, Senator Chuchi to stop looking and stop fussing about yeah, it, you know? Yeah, he was just so. like, he I was saying... He really trust his promises by yeah. And he's not in control. He's been arrested. Yep. So we know that any promises he made about looking after them, you know, whether they were, um, you know, false or, you know, true in, in intent, doesn't actually matter anymore. One, one plot point that kind of struck me, and if I've interpreted it correctly, leaves me a little bit curious. It was kind of implied that part of the reason Rampart destroyed Taboga City was to stop the ongoing production of clones, kind of implying that they were still being produced yes. and trained and being used as a as the military force of the of the republic don't really sort hadn't really personally thought or put a lot of thought into them coming off the Tobacco city production line per se on an ongoing basis and and resulting in the necessity of having to from rampart's point of view of having Tobacco city uh, destroyed to halt that production and and to uh, force the switch over to the recruitment of stormtroopers because we know that they had been siphoning money away from it, you know, obviously slow, to, to slow it down. To slow it down, for yes. His own, for his own needs, yeah. But I guess they figured that at some point there'd be too many questions that would raise too many flags and they just needed something a little more concrete to end it because they might not have been able to sort of convince the Senate to yeah. do it. So they basically found a way, whether it was Palpatine's plan all along or whether it just kind of naturally evolved using the ambitions of, you know, people in the higher ranking positions in the Empire to kind of use them to sort of puppet his way. We don't know fully why the Emperor wants Stormtroopers recruits as opposed to the clones. But I get the feeling that the Bad Batch future episodes is really going to help us understand that. Yeah. We don't see episodes from of, Palpatine's viewpoint. Not yet, no. It's kind of, it's very centered on... He pretty on, much came into the, on the tail end of these episodes. Yeah. We don't see things from his perspective like we did in the prequels where we see his secret conversations with Darth Maul and Count Dooku. So we don't get quite that one. We do get a little bit of some of the Empire, like we see Rampart and Masa Meda talking in the mm-hmm. hallway, and we sort of get a little bit of the Imperial scheming there, but not Palpatine. He's this kind of this elusive grandmaster, as they reference that he, he doesn't really turn up for Senate sort of hearings or discussions anymore. And they're just like, oh, he just wants the senators to decide what's best you know making it seem like it's all that he's not wanting to be too controlling and leaving it up to the senators to decide but we know it's because he doesn't want to draw attention or to sort of play his hand in a way that will um possibly give people a way to undermine his his total authority so i'm I'm left presuming that uh from palpatine's point of view Wiping the slate clean every now and then is a way to ensure loyalty of, of the forces beneath you. I mean, he directly 
used the scapegoated effectively uh, the, the the clones in entirety as being untrustworthy because he said they were the ones that actually followed orders to destroy Topoka City as well to fire on their on their own. But so I think I think. I don't know if he truly doubts their loyalty or just wants a clean slate to sort of enhance the loyalty of the troops. But either way, we know that he's got what he wants and uh, that enhances his his strength and his positioning overall, which is, well, we know where it goes, obviously, but it's, yeah, it feels quite sinister in the moment. Yeah, we, uh, I, we don't really even need a reason why Palpatine want stormtroopers we just know that we have to get from clone troopers in the prequels to stormtroopers in think, the original I trilogy are, i think the story we are going to hear a little bit more about that over the next few episodes i uh, think it would be a really interesting sort of puzzle piece to give fans and of course i was especially happy to see ian mcdermott coming in to voice those pivotal scenes obviously all of the voice work in Star Wars animation has always been great. You know, there have been plenty of talented voice actors, but there is just something about the way that Ian sort of revels in the Palpatine oh, role. Just the really precise, slow pacing of his delivery. That combined with the, the grandeur of, of Palpatine's entrance into the Senate just made that whole, those sort of near closing scenes of that episode very, very impactful and significant. You almost forget that you're watching animation in some of those scenes. It felt so much like him as as we see him on screen. It was really quite cool. The other thing that's kind of feeling um, that really kind of stood out to me in, in terms of the overall vibe is is that the number of clones that are still just there, they were just in, in Coruscant in the after hours officers mess sort of thing. And the fact that they want to keep active, they were talking about wanting to keep active, even if it's just you know, quelling insurgencies, they want to contribute because that is what their life has been. And it implies that it's not a problem from, you know, some people's point of view that it can be swept under under the rug. There's quite a lot of clones out there that want to be active and, uh, some, you know, I... That's going to make for some interesting storytelling over the next few episodes, I think. Yeah, when Senator Tucci and Rampart are talking, mm-hmm. he makes reference to basically paying the pension out for millions of clones. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. we know that there are millions, yeah. and they are effectively uh, sort of homeless. They don't have their home world on Camino anymore. They weren't really sort of native to Camino. They don't really have no, sort of like... they've existed a, a, in a military structure. And they don't have a home world where they can just go and retire. They resources. They, yeah. They've always just lived as employee, employees they don't even sort of, of the empire. Of there's that. no real reference to even sort of having a pay. No. You know, they just, they, they, they do their job as soldiers. They get what they need in terms of housing and food and supplies and stuff like that. And when she's talking to them about what are your needs, they don't even really seem to be able to... They don't have a plan for what they're going to do when they get too old to fight. Yeah, they just don't even sort of... they. It's so deeply programmed in them that they are soldiers and they don't really, they can't think of anything else. And you can see them just sort of stewing on Coruscant that they're just like, I want to be out there basically just wanting to fight. Not really, even like he, I think one of them says that they're not even really programmed to think about what happens after. Mm, no, and the fact that we saw many of them and we saw many of them uh, questioning what they've done and, and why they're here, uh, and that reference to millions means that it's a a very big issue that needs some sort of storytelling resolution uh, moving forward. I think. 
I liked bringing back Senator Tucci, who appeared in some episodes in The Clone Wars yeah, many sure. years ago. I thought it was fun. It made that first episode, The Clone Conspiracy, feel very much like just a straight Clone Wars episode. Just but, set after the conclusion of the literal Clone Wars. It's all, yeah, because yeah, we're still dealing with clones. We're still sort of dealing with the senators and things. And it kind of makes me... It makes me sad, you know, when you sort of think that this is the time point where Padme Amidala is no longer with us, because um, it felt like Chuchi was the kind of the senator that would be doing what Padme would be doing if she yeah. was still alive. And we see the involvement of Senator Organa in these scenes. Very cool. You know, yeah. sort of pulling together, um, working with those senators that are still trying to do good in the world. We see a couple of senators that are very, very clearly, you know, under the Emperor's thumb. They're kind of just towing the line and doing... We see them trying to well, basically Chuchi kick her out. Chuchi and didn't have much support other than no, Organa at all. No. Uh, so I was fortunate. I mean, when, when then the Babats comes along and Amiga was helping directly with Chuchi and, and directing directly with Bail Organa. So that's, mm. those were cool scenes to see. And we had the uh, disgraced Kaminoan senator who yes. was also from episodes of The Clone Wars. And another little aspect to the, the, the sort of double episode that I thought was interesting was there's a number of times where Omega mentions that she's a clone. Mm -hmm. And I, I start to wonder how widespread that knowledge is, that there is basically a different clone running around, that she is alive. Because she says that in front of a Kamina one that didn't seem to know that she was a clone. No, she no, just referenced they, like, her camera, as a child. The, the camera specifically paused to long enough to for that reaction or that lack of reaction to really sink in for the audience they made it quite clear that uh, her announcement Amiga's announcement that she was a clone did not register at all as significant or or, or known facts with the uh, senator yeah so it makes me wonder whether we're going to see a little bit more of that you know people have sort of wondered whether what would happen if people knew that there was sort of like a, a slightly sort of pure original because she is aging at a normal rate compared to the other clones she is like boba fett but we still don't really know why that very small no, sort of secretive was, uh batch of Kaminoans made omega what what way, her yeah. intent was like was, was she a specific purpose was she just a pet project and whether there could be you know factors out there that are still looking for her or uh would scheme something having learned of her existence i'm it may be a, it may be a dead end now that yeah. tobacco city's gone uh, whatever they had in mind just will never come to fruition but or there may be a more much more significant story from omega's point of view as to who who she is and why she was created and, and what that may or may not mean moving forward um, in the absence of the other Kaminoans and the production line the clone production facilities uh you know i'm sure we've talked about that in previous podcasts and i think we will undoubtedly talk about it in the future i did actually like omega's um role in this episode it wasn't yes. it wasn't big uh but it, she was very much invested in helping the clones you know obviously yes. because she is a clone she sees them as brothers but i like the way that uh she bonded very quickly and closely with senator tucci and even spail organa in terms of helping them and and relating to them and uh, I, I, yeah I'd like, i really want to see her story develop and i want to see her i want to see her mature and where they go you know, not just in terms of her reason for being in there, but just from a personal point of view, what how her story develops. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because we know that she is essentially 
as close to sort of a sister to Boba Fett as one could get. They are essentially both clones of Django, but because Boba was sort of raised alongside Django, that's where his trajectory and path went. And he's, he, we see him in the Clone Wars, and he has a very different worldview. He's very cynical, and he gets straight sort of into sort of, you know, the world of crime and bounty hunting. Yeah. And because Omega has grown up around the clones, she is very much more, she doesn't have the same, or at least we assume, not the same programming like clone troopers, but she's very much sort of on an opposite trajectory. She wants to do good. Every time there is a situation in front of her, she wants to help people and she's very kind-hearted and trustworthy and she's very trusting. Yeah, and no, we that, see contrast, her, that contrast is a very interesting point. I agree. Um, and it would be... I want to know where the showrunners want to take her and I'm hoping we get sort of like this really long sort of interesting story arc for her. I think she's a really interesting character, you know, figuring out that, oh yeah, there's another sort of pure clone, but this one's a girl and, and where that might go. And we get some really sweet moments. We see her meditating at the start of the episode, uh, that she was sort of taught to by the Jedi, Jedi Padawan Gunji in the previous episode. And she's just sort of learning to be still. She's absorbing a lot from the world around her because she's been very sheltered most of her life with the Kaminoans on Kamino and she's sort of absorbing and learning from different people that she meets along her way and then we get this sort of sad moment where she's like trying like talking to Echo saying oh perhaps you'd like to meditate and he was like no you know <laughs> I did enough of you being alone solitude, yeah. um and I should have seen it coming that sort of uh, special moment between the two of them because we see Omega more directly involved with the sort of the original Bad Batch members. You know, we've got Hunter, Tech, and Wrecker still still here. We didn't see quite as much with her and and Echo quite as much. Not on a personal level like that, no. So it should have it should have resonated that oh something might happen to Echo in this episode, and it wasn't bad. But we see him moving off to help Rex, and I I think it'd be fun if we get a little bit you know a few more threads that we see a little bit more about what Rex is going to do. Well, I think we especially have to. I think, since I we think... know that the the future of the clone troopers is now quite up in the air. Now that it's basically like oh yeah we don't need you guys anymore. So Rex is going to have his hands full helping them all, and obviously. Echo is a little bit more aligned with sort of the classic clone troopers. Um, yeah, well, Echo Rex plus Tucci as a trio, that's a very strong storytelling trajectory and narrative. I think uh, just leaving that as a, as a background and, and presumed as, as a little bit of a lost opportunity. I, I, I do hope that we see directly what they get up to and that they cross paths again with Bad Batch in a, in a concrete way, maybe by the end of the season. Yeah, I thought that these episodes were really important. I think where, you know, we had a few of those sort of just sort of one episode self-contained sort of adventure ones. And now we're really starting to get into uh, the main sort of plot points for this season. And it just makes me very, very excited about where we're going to sort of gather momentum to for the season uh, finale. Now, going through those episodes, watched them a couple of times now, I guess it's time for us to catch up uh, now that we have internet and electricity again and watch the most recent episode of Bad Batch, episode 9, very excited, and we'll be talking about that one in next week's podcast. On that note though, that's about it for today's installment, I guess we are done doing talking. If you've got any thoughts on the topic to be discussed today, we're definitely keen to hear them. Leave a comment on our YouTube page or our website page for this podcast. 
Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you taking your time to listen to us share our passion for Star Wars. Stay tuned to our website, stmnz.co.nz, for Star Wars news for New Zealanders and another podcast episode next week and each week thereafter. Don't forget, you can jump on over to either our Facebook group or the SWZ message boards to discuss all the latest Star Wars news with other Kiwi fans. Kia noho haumaru, thank you for listening and stay safe. Turo Hawaiki, may the force be with you.